0: Colossi. we started looking at this last week, just the same passage, and I hope that um, you know, you've been able to look at it on your own time some over the course of this week, and that you'll continue to just look at it, and um, there is a lot of stuff here, and there's, as, I'm, as I've been preparing to preach this, and as I've just been trying to take it in devotionally, there's so much here, even this morning, that I have to neglect because this is such an inexhaustible passage of Scripture. We could spend an exorbitant amount of time just staring at this and, and letting it roll around in our head and really just taking in, feasting on it, taking in every all the nutrients of the passage, if you will, as we seek to have Christ's picture, His portrait painted for us by the Holy Spirit's words documented in Scripture, preserved here in Scripture. And, and really, this morning, we're, we're going to focus on just two more aspects of this passage. And again, you'll, you'll be looking at it, and, and as you're looking at it, you're going to see all the things that I'm missing here. And, and you, would, you would be right, I'm, I'm missing a lot. And, um, but prayerfully, we're going to see what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to see together. And so starting with verse 15, in Colossians chapter 1, can we begin to look at this last week, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, painting this portrait for us, he says, he's speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18. And He's the head of the body, the church. We're going to spend time on that this morning. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God... Was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you. Who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you For this word, we thank you, God, that for those of us that are Christians this morning, God, our spirit bears witness with this, Lord. We say amen to this, and we we ask that your spirit would use it to to shape us, to transform us more to the image of Christ. I'm so thankful that He's the head of the church. So thankful that His blood brought peace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to, to jot this down, to shorthand this, but, but Christ alone is the head of His body, the church, capital C, the church, and this is good. All right? Christ alone is, is the head of His body, the church, capital C, and this is good. We see this in, in, in verse 18 here. And he's the head, he's the top, right? he's the top of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And again, there's lots to unpack, lots to unpack just in this verse, much of which even in this verse I'm going to neglect. But, but I want us to think through something that we hear, something that's common speak amongst Christians which is that Christ is the head of his church, and the C in that first point is capitalized, because Paul has in view here the, the pure, invisible, universal church. Right? Last week, we began to recite the Apostles' Creed together, and that phrase, that phrase, you, you may know that what I'm about to say, the Holy Catholic Church right? It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. That's not what should come to our head when we say the Holy Catholic Church, when we recite the Apostles' Creed at the end of the service this morning. It means the universal, pure church, or as some of you have heard it, it means the invisible church. The invisible church. It's composed of all of those saints that the Holy Spirit of God has truly regenerated, has truly regenerated. It consists of all those saints who have truly been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. The the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says it this way, better than I could say, it says the Catholic or the universal church with respect to the internal work of the spirit of truth and grace may be called invisible. Here's what it consists of. What does that make up? Consist of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Right? Christ is the head of that body, C, capitalized C there, he, and he has eternal union with that body, right? He's eternally wedded to that body. When you think of Christ as a head, you should also be thinking of this marital picture, right? The apostle Paul kind of props that up in another uh, letter that he writes to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus chapter 1. We see this mystery of this union that a husband and wife share is, is reflecting Christ's relationship with his bride, Christ being the head and the church being the body. But Christ is the head of the body, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 says, And he, God the Father, put all things under his, under Christ's feet, and gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The, The Father gifted us, he gifted the church, the body, with Christ as head. And, and Christ, as obvious as this should be to us, right, Christ is the only head. Right? He's the only head of his church. It's not a leader, it's not an elder. Christ is the head. But not only that, not only should we know that, obviously. But we should know, obviously, even though we're forgetful of it, we should know that it's good that Christ is the only head of His church. Right? We've seen things go drastically wrong, and I'll give us an example in a moment, but we've seen things drastically go wrong when people begin to operate, leaders begin to operate as if they're the head of the church, instead of Christ being the head of the church. But it's good that Jesus is the only head of the church. He's incorruptible. Right? Christ is incorruptible. Christ is stable. Christ is steadfast. He's the same, the scripture says, yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 3, or Hebrews 13, 8. And, and you can trust him. You can trust him. He doesn't change the rules on us, does he? Christ doesn't change the rules on us. And as our head, we benefit even from his headship. We benefit from Christ's headship. His death meant our death, though we didn't die. Right? His life, His resurrection, what people are more mindful of this coming Lord's Day, His resurrection means our eventual bodily eternal resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead, is what Paul says here. Right? Christ, this glorious, Unchanging good head, he weds himself to us. That's why in him we die, in him we live. He weds himself to us for eternity. He becomes completely on his own with no help from us whatsoever. He becomes one flesh with us. And the scripture says, What God's joined together, let no man put asunder. Mark 10 9. Yet man, right, under the influence of those invisible spiritual forces that we talked about last week, has sought to separate, has sought to divorce Christ the head from his body, okay? Has sought to divorce Christ the head from his bride, from, and that's been the case from the very beginning, right? From the, since the serpent in the garden, Right? And, it, and while it's an absolute impossibility for those who are truly wed to Christ to be separated from Christ, the warfare that's waged is real, it's fierce, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Right? And, the, and there are real-world consequences, devastating consequences, that extend far beyond your own person to those, and it, it extends to those that you love most, right? There's devastating consequences to giving giving yourself to another in marriage, right? To giving yourself to another head other than Christ Jesus, to yoking yourself. I think it's one of the reasons why we confess our sins. We try to make a habit of that. We want to be yoked to Christ. We don't want to be yoked to sin, and just as adultery obliterates the relationship between a husband and a wife, so our unfaithfulness to Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, who we're going to talk about more when we get into our series on the book of Ruth, our unfaithfulness to him is bad for us. It's bad for us. And throughout redemptive history, there have been those that have sought to, to woo, if you will, Christ's bride, Christ's very body, right? They've sought to, to, to steal the bride and, and, and become her head, and in doing so, lead the church astray. And the result of this, the result of this sort of behavior, usurping, if you, if you will, the result of that's always wickedness. It's always enslavement, right? True horror, true controversy. In fact, this is one of the issues that the Apostle Paul was writing to the church of Colossae about here. Turn with me for a moment to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Because all of this demonstrates our need to really internalize that Jesus Christ is the only head. Start with verse 8 here. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Right? We want to be captive by Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Jump down to verses 18 or verse 18, and go to verse 19 with me. Let no one disqualify you. you, right? He's speaking to people that would say, Christ is our head, Christ is all we need, Christ is sufficient. Paul's saying, don't let people who, who speak the opposite of that, he says, don't let, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. These counterfeit heads here in the, the church of Colossae, those that we could think of now, one that I'll give an illustration of in a moment. But these counterfeit heads, they sought to take Christ's church captive. They say that Christ is not supreme. They may not actually say that with their lips, but that's certainly where the teaching leads. That's, that's certainly the tone that is set. That's certainly what they want you to pick up on, and what we are often tempted by our own flesh in our own desires, right, our own sin nature, what we're tempted to believe and operate according to. But these were counterfeit heads here in this church that were saying, Christ's not supreme, therefore look to us. We'll give you what you need to be made clean. In fact, Paul lists some of the things that these people insisted on. One of which is asceticism, which is essentially pride. It's the worship of yourself. Uh, It's the let me make myself look like I've been denying myself so that people can see how devoted and spiritual that I am. Let me put my religion on display, right? What we would commonly say is virtue signaling. It's keeping up with the appearance of what man thinks religion should be. That's what that is. They also insisted on the worship of angels, right? which is idolatry. It's idolatry. These spiritual so-called heads insisted that true spirituality, it would lead to visions. All, all sorts of ecstatic, just over-the-top experiences, right? If, a, if the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the fruit of their spirit, what they were peddling was lack of self-control, except, and, and, except so much as it, uh, self-control would serve... Uh, the the giving the appearance of uh, r- being a, a devoted religious person. Right, but this this could be enough to make anybody doubt that's not doing or experiencing the things that false teachers in the Church of Colossae here were peddling. It could make anybody doubt their salvation. It could make anybody doubt the sufficiency and the, the supremacy of Jesus. And, and that's what counterfeit heads do. They point to themselves. They point to themselves and they enslave those who look to them. They, they bind their consciences. It's what counterfeit heads do. And this is one of the reasons why, and this is the example I wanted to give you from the, the 1689 confession. This is why, if you're familiar with the 1689, they call out the Pope in the 16th century. If if we remember the origins of this document, this document was birthed in adversity, an attempt to reform the Catholic Church. It wasn't an attempt to separate from the Catholic Church. They got kicked out of the Catholic Church. It was an attempt to reform it. The framers, they weren't interested, and you can see this from this document, they weren't interested in dead orthodoxy. They were applying God's Word in their very situations. But listen to this if you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about. This is chapter 26 of the 1689, paragraph 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. And here we go. Neither can the Pope of Rome, in any sense, be the head thereof. And this is where the language gets strong. But is that Antichrist? The man of sin, son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy when the brightness, uh, with the brightness of his coming. Right, those are very strong words. And for us, being so far removed from, and, and, and I don't think we're removed from the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church in any stretch of the imagination, but removed from the intensity and adversity that these brothers were facing. But these brothers saw, the framers of the confession saw Catholic doctrines such as papal infallibility and indulgences and the veneration of Mary and baptismal regeneration, and, and that's just scratching the surface. But truly, the Reformers, modern-day equivalent of, uh, of what Paul called... Um, uh, asceticism, angel worship, etc., this was their, their modern-day equivalent of that in the framing. Right? If the Pope operates as a co-head of sorts and, and claims infallibility, which is really an attribute that only the Lord has, the Reformers would have been right in including this in in the 1689 here. And the, and the point is, and I give that to you just as another illustration, we see, we see what's happening in the Church of Colossae that... that uh, resulted in the Apostle Paul writing in that way. We see in church history in the 16th century what happened, and we see the application of Christ as the head of the church. Right? It's, it's great when we just all say that. Right? We can just say that all day long. We could, we could sign a document that says that and, and all agree to it, but saying that, confessing that, and that, anima- that seeping into your bones and animating absolutely everything in your life is a, is a different ball game. Right? It's the difference between dead orthodoxy that no one cares about, that has zero power whatsoever, right? and, and applied theology, applying what it is that we know to be true about God and His church. This is what we're interested in. We're interested in the application of the Word of God, not in some dead document. Right. And we have examples here. We have examples here. And the point is, Jesus doesn't share his headship with anybody. He doesn't share his headship with anybody. Nor does he share his bride with anybody. Not only does he not share his position, but he does not share us with anyone. Anyone. And it's for his glory, and it's for our genuine good that that's the case. Look back at Colossians 2. Right, we painted a picture in scripture. We painted a picture with church history of what having a different head looks like and all the ugliness that comes from having a different head, what that looks like. This is what having Christ as head looks like. If we're clinging to Christ as head, the Apostle Paul says in verse 19 the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows a growth that is from God. What a difference. When you're looking at this, we should see clearly, like, no way do I want another head. No way do I want to belong, do I want to yoke myself to anyone else. I want to be yoked to Christ. I want to be yoked to Christ. Christ the head. Christ as husband he nourishes us. He knits us together, His body, the church. Right? If counterfeits, counterfeit heads seek to enslave and control, right? Christ does the opposite of that. And, and how anxiety-inducing is that? Right? In contrast to that, Christ nurtures. Christ frees. Christ gives rest. Christ allows for liberty. <laughs> Christ holds you fast. He holds you fast. So why would we we submit ourselves to an imposter? Why would we submit ourselves to an imposter who, 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 who has behind them the accuser who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy? We know what that's like, right? Christ rescued us out of that. Why would we run back to that? So, Christ's head is significant. It's significant. As our head, he's not only our king and our lord, but he's our husband. He's our husband, a husband who, who lives with us in an understanding way, a husband who washes us, a husband who sanctifies us, a husband whose love for us leads to our spiritual flourishing. So, Christ is our head, and this is good. Point two, last point. Don't get excited. i got 40 subpoints. <clears throat> okay. Christ made peace because He is peace. Christ made peace because He is peace, right? We see that in verse 20. I'll start with verse 19 just to reread that. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, through Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making Peace by the blood of his cross. Man, don't ever read that passage and just gloss over it, right? Don't ever read that phrase and just quickly move by. Don't ever get past that. I just want to spend time making, spend time thinking through that, that phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross, right? Christ our head, Christ our husband, he made peace at great cost to him. Right, his own blood. He spilled his blood to make peace. And there's three questions worth asking here. Questions that you may think are obvious questions, but questions that I wrestled through as I worked through this passage. The three questions are this. Number one, who did Jesus have to make peace with? It's the first question. Who did Jesus have to make peace with? The second question, how did Jesus make peace? And the third question it is what is the result of making peace? So who did Jesus have to make peace with? How did Jesus make peace? And what is the result of making peace? I said, well, first question. Right? He made peace between us and God. He made peace between us and God. Right? It's a heretical teaching to say that Christ paid a ransom to Satan. Right? That, that, that's a, a teaching we would reject. Right? Satan is a, is a creature, and God's no debtor to Satan, just as God's no debtor to man. Right? But Christ came because the Father's holy Justice demanded the shedding of blood for the, for the sins and the hostilities of man. Right, contrary to what we may be tempted to think at times, but, but man is not good. Man is not good. Our, our nature is corrupted. Our nature is corrupted. The, the good God, the good that God created is manipulated. It's, it's twisted by sin. And it's only by God's restraining common grace that we're not as bad as we could be, right? Apart, of, apart from God's restraining common grace, we, we would have all killed each other by now. We aren't as sinful and as polluted as we could be, but to use a word, we are depraved. We are depraved. We're thoroughly corrupt, in, 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 in so much so that we aren't even neutral. We shouldn't even think of ourselves as neutral. Sometimes we like to to think that we, you know, we see both sides to things, and we, you know, we've got a clear perspective on things. But but we're we're not even we're not even neutral. Right? There, there was a false teaching as early as the late 300s, and, and condemned, in fact, at 418 at the Council of Carthage, that still has prominence today, called Pelagianism, put forward by a man named you guessed it, Pelagian. Um, and, and, and the teaching was that man is born morally neutral, right down the middle and has the capacity if he or she chooses to, to live a sinless life, to live a perfect life. And it was Augustine that, that wrote against that extensively in his book called The, the City of God, articulating both man's nature and, and anything good in man being a grace from God, our salvation chiefly being all of grace. But we're not neutral, and we don't need to fall into that sort of faulty thinking. Our nature's been corrupted since the fall of Adam, and every sin that we commit, every one of our actual sins that we we commit is an outworking of that original sin. Look back at Colossians, verse 21. And And you... Paul, again, speaking to the church of Colossae, but he's speaking to us as well this morning through the Holy Spirit, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That word alienated meaning estranged, hostile, hostile in mind meaning meaning enemies or aggressive, right? doing evil deeds, kind of the default position, if you will. Right? Elsewhere, the apostle Paul calls us in Romans chapter 5, enemies of God. Verse 10, King David said that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him, Psalm 51, 5. Apart from the, the intervening work of God, we were his enemies, shaking our fist at him, forming our weapons against him. And according to Paul, there was this dividing wall of hostility, We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read that passage in a minute. But chapter 2, verse 14, there was this dividing wall of hostility that we put up between us and God. We were at odds with God. We were at war with God. And for things to be made right between us and him, blood had to be shed. Blood had to be shed. An acceptable sacrifice, a perfect object of God's wrath. Christ came to make peace, us with God. Jesus is our mediator, and he acquired forgiveness for us. He satisfied the, the Father's wrath, and this gets us into a little bit of the the... the, the The third question, but I'm not going to completely go there. But he satisfied the Father's wrath for our sin. It's our rebellion, our, our sin, our very nature that's offensive to the holy, just, unchangeable God. But Christ made it possible for us to be in relationship with God without us being consumed. God's righteous demands were forever satisfied in Christ for the church. Christ made peace, He made peace. So the second question, how did Jesus make peace? Again, we're answering them in different ways as we go on, but he made peace through the shedding of his blood. But get this, get this. It couldn't have just been any old sacrifice. It couldn't have just been any, any old sacrifice. It couldn't have just been anyone's blood. All right, our incorruptible God sets the standard for how he shall be pleased. Our incorruptible God sets the standard for how He shall be pleased. He defines the terms, not us. And if peace needed to be achieved because we were at war, then peace needed to be offered up. Peace needed to permeate the atmosphere. Absolutely nothing else would do. Right? The Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.20, Your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one, verse thirteen, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Through the prophet Amos, he says in chapter five, verse twenty-two of Amos, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Jesus is peace, who offered himself and is fully pleasing to the Father. Fully pleasing to the Father. Jesus is peace that made peace, eternally so, by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the only acceptable, he's the only eternal sacrifice for our sin. Paul says to the church of Ephesus, the passage I referenced a moment ago, verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2, but now in Christ, you who were once far off, I love that. You who were once far off, it's all of us, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All those sacrifices offered up by those who committed high treason against God, are in stark contrast to the God-man who sacrificed himself willingly to make things right between us and God. We, We were hostile enemies, and now we're sons and daughters and citizens and heirs. We're the wife, we're the bride, we're the body of Christ. He made peace. He is peace. The preacher to the Hebrews, in fact, uses the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrifices in, in, in the priests. And he compares them to Jesus to demonstrate the very thing that we've been looking at these last two weeks, which is that Jesus is supreme. He's supreme. I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 to see him make that exact point. So the final question, and we've answered it some. Let's focus on it a little bit more. What's the result of Christ who's peace making, peace. Look at verse 21 in Colossians 1 again, because I want to connect it the way the, the Apostle Paul does. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right, we can see this framed a little bit better. It says, If Paul... Is saying to the church of Colossians, as if Paul is saying to us, Have you been alienated? Have you been hostile in mind? Have you been doing evil deeds? Right? Anybody? Is that anybody? It's as if Paul's saying that. Is that anybody here? Am am, Am I speaking to any of you? If so, I have good news Christ came for you. Christ came for you. His blood was spilled for you. Jesus says something similar to this in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. It says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, right? You want to know why Christ came? Here it is. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. If you're a sinner this morning, there is very good news. right? Christ came for you. He came for you. If you know yourself to be alienated, if you know yourself to be hostile in mind, if you know yourself to have done evil deeds, in a word, to be a sinner, hearing the words from our Savior, I came for you. Man, can, can better words be spoken? Can better words be spoken? All right, Christ came to call you, and His calling you is His saving you. His calling you is a saving you, His forgiving you. His wedding Himself to you. Him becoming your head, your master, your Lord, your king, your savior, your refuge. Your peace. Your peace. Alienated. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. It's contrasted in verse 22. With holy which is set apart, which is consecrated, blameless, which is to be morally perfect in God's eyes, and above reproach, which is to be beyond accusation. This is the outworking. This is the result of Jesus, who is our peace, who is our head of making peace by the blood of his cross. Our new nature, our new identity for those of us in Christ is holy, not because of anything in us, but because of Christ, who is holy. We're blameless, not because we aren't blameworthy, but because Christ made us morally upright before God. We are above accusation, not because we've lived carefully, but because Christ was beyond accusation, though he was falsely accused, tried, and crucified. Us sinners, us sinners are made saints at no doing of our own. Right? We're saints because we share union. We now share union with Jesus Christ. And this is all of grace. right? Christ alone accomplished this. This is, this is what the head of our church did. This is what the head of our church did. This is what Peace Incarnate did. This morning, I want to give you takeaways differently than I normally do. These are takeaways based on a verse I didn't preach, which is verse twenty twenty three, And I want to give them to you in the way Paul gave them to the church of Colossae, because it's answering the question, or he's anticipating the question as I see it, how do we live in light of Christ being our head? And, and this, there's so many things that could be placed here, but I'm trying to limit it just to this one verse. But how do we live in light of Christ being our head? How do we live in light of Christ being our peace? How do we live in light of us being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? I mean, C.S. Lewis called this good pretending. If you you imagine, it's the asking yourself the question, if I were forgiven, all my guilt washed away, and I was purchased by Christ, if I shared union with Christ, and I was placed on this earth to find my joy, my delight in Him, and for that to have an outreach beyond my own person, how then would I live? If that were true, Let me pretend for a moment that that were the case. How would I live? Lewis called this good pretending. Because if you're in Christ, you're not actually pretending at all, are you? You're being who he created you to be. You're being who he saved you to be. Paul says, verse 23, You should continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, again, let's think of imposters there, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So some takeaways for us based on that. Number one, continue in the faith by marveling daily at the supremacy of Jesus. So number one, continue in the faith by marveling daily at the supremacy of Jesus. Number two, Reject any teaching, right, external, or any inward inclination that you face that makes you behave as if Christ is not enough. And number three, this connects us a little bit from one of my points last week, but remember the supremacy of Christ is not a secret. It's not a secret. It's been proclaimed, Paul says, in all creation. It's It's our unrighteousness that suppresses that plain, fixed reality. But the supremacy of Christ is declared in heaven and it's declared on earth. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in it, God. We ask that you would help us really to to feel, experientially feel, just how good it is that Christ is our head, just how good it is that Christ who is our peace made peace by the blood of his cross and help us, Lord, to walk in that strength with that mindfulness and we pray this in Jesus' name.